to Digital Transformation with Jack Marr and Jay Mata. Digital Transformation is about so much more than technology. It's about refocusing on people and value. It's about leveraging technology to build more meaningful relationships and enabling and empowering our associates, building engagement and giving them the tools and opportunity to do what they do best and even do it better. It's about culture, relationships, and tools that can unlock customer obsession in an organization. It drives innovation and responsiveness that propels your organization and delights your stakeholders, creating and building relationships founded on value, creation, and delivery. So, Jay, I think we've got a pretty interesting show for today, especially for the techies. We're going to get a little bit towards the deep end. Uh, Shad Parker is going to come on and talk about automated testing and share some real-world experience that encompasses a couple of different organizations. He's going to talk about what that automated testing looks like and some of the tools they're using. And then Michael May is going to join us to talk about automating your infrastructure. That's one of those things that I know for a lot of folks has been a mental hurdle for them to think about how do you even automate something that we used to think of as a very manual process of building and configuring servers. So that's going to be really interesting. And we're going to hear a couple more of the laws of value creation from Andrew Kingery. I really love having that as a part of of our show, and he's been a great sponsor. Yeah, I love Andrew's laws, man. Those are pretty good. I look forward to them. And also Chad and also Michael, they got some pretty cool stuff coming on you. Welcome to Digital Transformation with Jack Marr and Jay Mata. Today, we are pleased to have Shad Parker join us. We're going to talk a little bit about automated testing. Thanks uh, for joining us today, Shad. Yeah, definitely, Shad. Good to have you here. So so what happened? So take me through the process, if you would. Uh, usually, I'm dealing with internal customers and a lot of like system-to-system type integrations or testing, perhaps front-end applications like our IGS.com or, you know, our, our front uh, GUIs just depends on what team and, and how it's split up. So Let me uh, I, jump in here for a second. Um, I'm going to set the stage here just a little bit. Shad is in what I think is probably the most important piece of that DevOps stack. You know, we've talked about automated testing and certainly um, on the blog lately, I've been really talking a lot about how Automated testing is really the most important part. You must do security testing as part of that, or you're really not doing continuous delivery. So we're right in the heart of DevOps right now of uh, how folks can do automated testing. This is something that uh, Shad has done ac- uh, across a couple of companies. And so we're, we're really jumping into the deep end of the, of the technical pool with looking at automated testing. So he gets the software after it basically has come from the developers and has been uh, integrated into the pipeline uh, and then takes over from there with the, the testing before it can go into production. Got it. Okay. Okay. Thank you for that. Thank you. And thank you for that, Chad. My pleasure. So, uh, for us out there that are listening to this show and trying to understand um, some of the technology that you use. We use Ruby as our, our main language, uh, but we're interacting a lot with the infrastructure space. So that's actually been something that uh, has kind of evolved over the past, I'd say, five years or so in there, is that the automated testers are having to get more involved with technologies like Kubernetes, Docker, uh, AWS, Azure, you know, things like that. 
And so really needing to understand that full tech stack and how to use it effectively has become kind of a, a real key part, especially as you start moving into more of like the lead or senior type roles, you're having to deal with architecture decisions and making sure you're using the right tools in the right situations. So I want to just, again, walk through the example a little tighter if we can. So after you've got the, the software from the developer, that then it goes through your testing, and then the next phase is then it goes into production, right? Correct, yeah. So we would pick up any time after the dev environment, typically, and there may be any number of up to five or six other environments between there and production. And so we would be, as a, a QA type environment, we would be responsible for ensuring that the tests are completed inside of there in a meaningful way and ensuring that we're logging all of the information out so that it can be correlated up and shown to actually mean we tested. So anything that kind of involves the actual running of the code or the website and ensuring that those things meet the the minimal criteria given by our business. Great. Great. Thank you for that. So, Shad, uh, let's talk a little bit about the the way that you're approaching your testing. And in particular, I'd like to help folks understand, you know, what they need to do to implement this for them. You'd mentioned that you use Ruby, and that's a very accessible tool set. In fact, I think you can actually get that all in an open source way. So you could implement testing without spending a dime in terms of software. But there's really more to it than that, right? So where would folks get started? Let's say I've just put together my team. We've got a small shop. We're just now implementing Agile. How do I get started with doing some automated testing? So the one thing that's really important to note is, yeah, you can pick up Ruby. You know, it's a free application, very, very accessible. It's a very easy language to pick up. It was originally based on a ton of other languages. So if you've ever done any kind of object-oriented programming before, it's most likely stolen a portion of whatever language you worked on, which makes for a very, very easy learning curve for people coming into it. So the cost of entry is very low. Now, to get things started, you have to make sure that you are applying the same developer attributes to it as far as architecture, making sure you're following the rules of object-oriented programming, the same you would with any other uh, development. There really is no real difference between an automated tester and a developer who's writing a website or anything other than the actual language and syntax. The, uh, the tester then, the person who's responsible for designing the tests, they would typically start working with the developer, especially in an agile team, right when they first begin to develop the code, right? So they're helping identify the requirements and how those would be translated into the way that they should test it, beginning with the developer's unit testing, and then designing that and then kind of working side by side for how they would test that in this automated environment. Is that right? It depends on really your methodology your your company is, is going to go with. So if you're going to go with an ATDD type setup or uh, acceptance test driven development, uh, you really would actually be starting your tests from the automated perspective before you ever write a block of development code. So you would actually write a test that fails and then have the developer write the minimal amount of code to make your test pass. That's kind of your ideal situation because it kind of keeps your developers honest so that they're not adding in all that extra stuff that would be nice to have. They're really sticking to what is the minimum thing that our business is asked for. Okay, so I've got my requirements. I know what the business needs, a new feature or whatever. Mm -hmm. We then design how we would detest that. What does that look like when that feature works correctly? That then gives the 
developer what they need to develop the code and mm-hmm. they write the code, they execute the test because they work together, it's probably going to mm-hmm. pass, right? Yeah, I mean, that's your plan is you should be having your developers and your testers paired pretty tightly doing pair programming, the same as you would with you know any other type of development pairing. So it really does lend a lot of support to everything because then the tester isn't being surprised the night before release with something they don't know anything about. They're really the ones that are setting the course and working with all of the teams to make sure that we're delivering what we should and nobody's being surprised. Right. Now, I also know that you're uh, really big into open source and that frameworks come up in pretty much every conversation we have. Mm -hmm. So, you know, how would those play into this? So a lot of this has to do, again, with what the company you're working with and what their risk tolerances are. Uh, IGS is very, very good at this, where they are willing to work with any type of open source programs if it meets the needs that we have. There's some open source frameworks that I've used at previous companies and am looking to possibly be using here, one of which is called Oz, which is uh, just a GUI testing open source framework uh, created by a gentleman here in town named Donnie Bush. Things like that where you have a community of people who can come in and actually support that, it saves you a lot of time on your development front because you're not starting from scratch. You're not trying to reinvent the wheel when somebody else has already kind of done that legwork for you. So if your company has the risk tolerance to use open source, it's very good. If not, you still have options of using like an inner source type setup where maybe you have, let's say, 10 teams doing testing and One team creates a web framework to be testing their website. The other teams don't necessarily need to create their own setup. And this is a trap that a lot of companies fall into is every team is given the latitude to be able to design whatever they want and they feel like they need to make it their own per se. Whereas you could do that inner source type setup and just kind of use what they have and maybe work to improve it to meet the needs of everybody as opposed to making a whole new thing. Right. Yeah. Not reinventing the wheel. That's really important. I remember telling my developers, don't develop anything from scratch or I'll have to fire you because it's all out there. Right. And they knew I was joking, but only halfway joking because there's so much out there and to be able to reuse it and build on it is so much smarter. The idea of open source is something that I want to make sure we touch on. I am such a proponent of that. But folks may not understand that, that haven't been around it for a while or, or haven't seen the recent developments. It used to be that open source was pretty cheesy and, and very spotty from a quality perspective. But yeah. that's not true anymore. Now, every company almost is using open source in at least one or more places. So, for example... Jenkins comes to mind. Pretty much Mm -hmm. everybody uses Jenkins. And a lot of it's because you can get started with it very easily, frequently at no cost. And because the source is open, you can modify it to whatever you need to do to make it work for you. But I think the most interesting part of this, and I I really blew some minds with some clients a couple weeks ago, We were talking about they had typically been an IBM shop and were using IBM tools. And I asked them about open source and they said, yeah, that's not really an option for us. Uh, Senior management looks at that as being too risky. And I said, well, let's unpack that just a little bit. When you get those tools from IBM, are you scanning to ensure that the code quality is what it should be, that there aren't any issues from coding standards like embedded access or things like that. And they said, well, yeah, no, of course not. 
I said, okay, so what about running vulnerability scans against those applications? Well, no, we don't really do that either because they're from IBM. I said, so you don't really know, and is that software perfect? Well, of course not. We have to do patches all the time. Exactly. So we know there are issues there. We just don't really know what they are. On the other hand, if you use open source, you can absolutely scan that code just like you would your own code to check for coding standards or for vulnerability. So you can actually significantly increase your security stance. And they were like, holy cow, their, their minds were blown and the wheels were spinning like crazy. I think when we begin to explore what open source really looks like now, a lot more folks are, are going to jump into that. This is not rocket science. While it is complicated and you definitely need to have some background in this, it's very accessible and it's something that everybody can and, and should be using. Is there anything else that, that you would suggest for folks as they get started uh, on this path towards automated testing? So from a, a different perspective, I guess, we have the, the two perspectives really of the people who are doing the work and the people who are holding the purse strings and managing these things. Doing it as a day-to-day -day coder, this stuff isn't rocket scientists, like you said. It is good coding practices will lead you down the path to a good framework. You, if you kind of stick to those things and you know listen to the more senior developers and, and making sure you're following those practices, you'll be in good shape. There are nuances, but they're overcomable. From the management perspective, the biggest thing is that these are applications in and of themselves. A lot of times, people will look at this and it is just an afterthought. There is no maintenance time given to a testing framework. It's just something that they expect will be able to just exist. You just create it once and it's, it works. And just like any other software, you have to have a maintenance window and development time and money put into that so that you can maintain it. Because every, think about it, every time you do a change to your application, you have a corresponding change that needs to go into your testing framework. Right. And the further you get out of sync with those, then the tougher things are to get back in line. So it is something you really have to keep up on and keep kind of in lockstep with what you're doing in your development front. Right. And one of the things that I talk <clears throat> about frequently is that we will not need fewer testers going forward. We will need more testers. And as we change the structure of our organizations to something that's flatter, something that's more lean, one of the best sources for those testers are folks that are coming from other parts of the business, sometimes especially from middle management because they have the experience in the marketplace. They know the customers. They understand the issues. They have seen what goes wrong and have a little bit more view both upstream and downstream. And so to the degree we can get those folks involved in this process, we can end up with much better testing. But to your point, it has to be something that is maintained right along with the code so that we continually have good test scripts and good testing practices in place. Because once we see too many failures happening, we no longer pay attention to it and we write it off as being a problem with the testing and not the code. So that yeah. uh, maintenance, that hygiene is really important. 
Yeah, and this is kind of something that I've seen across my career. In the automated space, when kind of going back to my earlier point of that automated testing, you are a developer. And a lot of organizations don't treat automated testing as such. And so you run into two major problems associated with that. And I've I've seen this at quite a few companies I've worked at, as well as talking with other people in the industry. It seems to be a common thread. And the common threads are that they let junior developers just build whatever they want to build. And they don't understand the architecture decisions that make something sustainable and make the maintenance an easier job to do in the long run. So that's kind of problem number one. And that's something you don't normally see in a normal development position is junior people making these sweeping decisions of how architecture should be done. Uh, The second one is that they feel, like you said, there's a lot of tribal knowledge when it comes to like manual testers or business. And there's a misconception that you can take those people and send them to a day course and now they're an automated tester. And I, I know I've tried to uplift probably at this point in my career 50 or 60 manual testers to be automated tester. And it's a very, very tough thing to do because you need to have that development background and understanding and a drive to want to be a developer. And that's something that uh, is not always taken into consideration when organizations are trying to pivot from more of a manual testing type setup into trying to do more of a DevOps or a CICD kind of pipeline with their their testing is they try to think that the people they have always will have the skill sets needed to transfer into being an automated tester. And that's not always the case. Right. There needs to be a lot of cross training there. To your point, I think it's an easier transition for the automated tester to come from the development space. But mm-hmm. we also need the skills of good test design and the understanding of, of what that is and what it takes. So that's not an easy challenge and, and certainly one of the things that we can look at on how we develop folks. But mm-hmm. um, great conversation. I, I feel like we probably will need to do this again. We really appreciate your time for today and thank you very much for sharing this with us and, and with our audience. That, thank you, Shaq. Thank you. Hi, this is Andrew Kingery with the Whitestone Consulting Group. In the next 60 seconds, I want to inspire you to be more intentional and effective at creating value. I'm covering the 20 laws that govern value creation two at a time. The law of judgment says judgment or criticism shuts down genuine empathy and prevents effective empathy. Avoid words like no, should, stop, don't, or won't, and phrases like that's odd or why would we do that? Remember, when you are diagnosing others' needs, you are seeking to understand as they understand, not as you would understand. The law of commitment is this. Co-creating creates commitment. When people have a role to play in building their future, they are four times more committed to the outcomes. So make sure the people around you or your customers are part of building the future with you. I'm Andrew Kingery, and this is Two Laws of Value Creation in 60 Seconds. If you want to learn more, head over to valuepractitioner.com. Getting the right message to the right people can be hard and expensive, especially with Google AdWords and Facebook advertising. We can help you leverage LinkedIn with their best demographic data on the planet to laser focus people who are probably looking for you. We can help you or 
even do it all for you with a full range of profile and activity campaigns that bring results guaranteed. Click on the LinkedIn expert button below or reach out to us at standingonshouldersmedia.us. Looking forward to sharing what Michael has to say about automated infrastructure. Absolutely. Yep. That's Defensive Security Certified Professionals. We're going to learn more about that, too. Yeah, and that is a big deal. Here we go. Welcome to Digital Transformation with Jack Marr and Jay Mata. Today, we've got Michael May with us. Yeah, welcome to the show, Michael. How are you? Good. Thank you very much. Tell our audience, I mean, what exactly does Michael May do? Sure. So I'm a lead engineer with a company down in Sarasota, Florida called Atlas Networks. Mm-hmm. And what we do over here is offer enterprise backend infrastructure for companies where their online presence is a critical piece of their infrastructure. And so we kind of offer those solutions uh, among uh, other services, mostly in the web ops space. So, so what does that look like? And I come at it from the novice's point of view. If from a someone listening in today or a person that's looking to get this, do you fulfill what the sales side does? Absolutely, yes. So, so I'm definitely an engineering side of being able to build that cloud infrastructure for whatever is being uh, sold or being talked about. How long have you been doing this? I've been doing this for a little over five years. You're part of this company or is this freelance kind of scenario? No, part of this company. Michael, one of the things that I was intrigued by our initial conversation and and really want to make sure that we help folks understand is what does that actually mean when we talk about infrastructure for folks? I know when I first talk to business leaders, there's always this kind of confused look on their face because most of us, when we think about infrastructure, are thinking about the blades that we put into racks and in data centers or maybe even back to the old days when we actually built a specific machine for an application. And to think about what that means to automate that is kind of hard for some folks to wrap their heads around. Can you help us walk through that for folks that may not have been in that space or Maybe they're a, a small organization that is uh, currently using services you know, within their own data center or possibly even doing things like a co-location kind of an approach. Yeah, absolutely. And I think today's world, especially with a lot of the, the cloud platforms being available to you, you know, what you want is consistency across your provisioning of your infrastructure. And what this provides is, is more than just a small script that you can run to provision the software on your, on your machines. You can really nowadays, with infrastructure as code, write and codify the provisioning and the you know, implementation of the actual pieces, servers, databases, whatever cloud services or you know, any kind of services that can be virtualized can be written as code. So you're getting a level of consistency that every time you know it's going to be provisioned the same way. If anyone's ever provisioned or spun up a server before that's doing it manually, he knows that mistakes can be made. We're all human. Even if we've done it a thousand times, we can miss something once. But when it's written in code, the idea is that it's, it's, it's written in stone. So 
That's just a great yeah. way to get started, to always to always have those machines being provisioned for you, to always have different services that need to be implemented through any kind of cloud service. You know it's going to be the same across the board. Sure. And that gets to one of the problems that I used to have and sometimes maybe inflicted on others is the idea of, you know, server drift. We used to use images to try to automate the process as much as as we could, but there were still some final configurations and changes. And occasionally there would be an update of a file or an idea or an improvement in a configuration, and we would make an improvement, but we wouldn't go back and redo every image to that date or every server to that date. So we'd have this broad range of versions and configurations, et cetera, that this addresses. And I think the other thing that is going to help at least a significant portion of our audience is to sort of see that, number one, this isn't some kind of new magic that came out of nowhere that we need to wonder, is this going to be persistent? Or, you know, the whole idea of the shelf life of technology continuing to get shorter, this has really been the progression from almost day one on mainframes. We had separate virtual machines, and we had virtualized processor and memory space and storage. We had uh, VMware, for example, back mm-hmm. around you know, 10, 15 years ago, were creating uh, virtual servers on mid-range machines, et cetera. So we've really had this progression beginning all the way from the mainframe through grid computing and into today. So it's really just the capabilities become better and better from a virtualization or abstraction basis. Is that an accurate statement, do you think? I'd say that's not only accurate, but you, know, you have the dawn of the platform as a services, the, the AWS, the uh, Microsoft Azure, and Google's cloud platform. And with those, they've just taken it to the next level. So everything that you said is perfectly accurate, and the way that it can be leveraged now is just only more that you can tap into the actual items in each platform and have that be codified as well. And the version control, and and as you mentioned earlier, consistency. And then, of course, you know the automation also brings some other things to it, not having human error enter in, but we also then have the ability to perform these uh, service provision activities at speeds that were just not even conceivable before. And, of course, having the flexibility of a cloud versus the resources that might be available just within your own data center is another whole echelon of expandability and virtually infinite resources for folks. Absolutely. You you can't click something as fast as it's going to be programmatically done, which is just great. So speed is, is definitely there. What I also love about it is for local development. If you have a, a developer working on an application and you want to be able to mirror that infrastructure that the application is going to be running on, if you have your infrastructure as code, you can use that and leverage that to be able to spin up local environments that you know are going to mirror production exactly. Yeah, and that becomes so critical for so many positive reasons. You know, in the past, it would have been amazing to be able, in some cases, to even have a test environment that's separate from prod and have a dev test prod kind of progression. That, to your point, mirrors production. But that wasn't a reality until the cloud came along. Nobody could afford to have a complete duplication of their data center with all of the same data, et cetera. It just wasn't feasible. Mm-hmm. Now you can spin it up and tear it down within a matter of seconds, minutes, hours, and you can have that complete copy without having to pay 
to build that many servers in the old-fashioned way. So the excuse that we used to sometimes hear of, well, it, it didn't run right in test because that's not exactly like production or the, the test data wasn't right, which brings us to the next level. So not only do we need this infrastructure, but, but data provisioning as well, which we'll save that topic for another day. <laughs> but I think the point here is that it's been this natural progression. Folks that think about servers in the past don't have to change the way they think about what do we need to do, but rather not worry how it's actually done. Yeah, and that's actually one of my favorite parts as well as infrastructure as code is that you don't have to go all in. If you wanted to try to make one line file for your infrastructure as code and build that and try it for one of your servers, you don't have to uproot your entire infrastructure to do that. You just give it a try for one. If it works, you tweak it, make a few others, and then you can grow from there. I mean, I would say to anybody, if you're manually provisioning a server right now, just give it a try for the next time. Uh, make yourself an infrastructure as code file. There's a lot of great open source tools. Ansible is one of them I can think off the top of my head. And each platform usually has their own baked in one, like AWS has CloudFormation. And I'm pretty sure that Google and Microsoft have their own as well. So yeah, I'd say give it a try next time you're, you're about to spin up a server. So let's get a couple of folks' ears that we know are going to be listening, right? We know that .NET is an extremely pervasive technology for folks to use today. If I'm using a .NET application, am I able to just do this? Do I need to change technologies? Do I need to rebuild my applications in order to do this? No, you wouldn't. You can just go ahead, and it's really about the underlying architecture. So if you're just thinking about, hey, I need to click a few buttons in uh, Microsoft Azure to create a server, um, instead of clicking those buttons, try giving uh, infrastructure as code, um, just writing a, a simple file in either Ansible or Terraform or whatever uh, Microsoft Azure's native infrastructure's cloud platform is, and it'll spin up that server for you, and then you're, you can put your .NET application on there however you would in the past. You can also dig deeper, and if you know exactly which application you want to be uh, deploying in there, you can manually do that in the infrastructure as code. I would always suggest that using some form of continuous integration, continuous deployment through your version control system, whether that be GitHub or, or GitLab or something of the sort, then have that pipe into your infrastructure versus having it handled by your infrastructure's code. Maybe just separate those as, hey, this is going to be my server builds. These are how I'm going to provision every piece of hardware in my cloud platform. And then your .NET don't need to change at all. Just deploy it to that infrastructure just like you would before. I think there are going to be light bulbs going off all over central Ohio and beyond <laughs> as folks hear this and realize that those dots are so easy to connect versus the fear that a lot of senior leaders have of like, oh, my, this is going to be expensive, isn't it? Mm -hmm. No, exactly. And that's the beauty is if you were just going to go in there and click and spin up a server, the only difference is that now you're automating it versus manually doing it. And so it's just saving you all that time, making sure you're consistent and you can do it right away without having to overall anything. And I think that's part of the key. And I appreciate you clarifying that because. That's what folks need to realize, I think, more than anything else, is that this doesn't require a whole overhaul of everything that you've already invested in. Most of it's really migration, and that sounds worse than it even is. Mm -hmm. Because right now, the reality is they don't really know where that server is, whether it's virtual or an old standby. If folks wanted to, to get started in this, what's the best way for them to do that? Is this something that your organization does? 
Absolutely. We can help and assist anybody who wants to control their own. We can, of course, handle it completely on our end from a managed services perspective. And we, we love helping developers and other organizations get their feet wet in this kind of stuff as well. So we're happy to consult and we're happy to own it all for you. If you, if something you never want to look at again, if you never want to look at a server infrastructure again, we'd be happy to take it for you. That sounds very tempting. How can folks get a hold of you? Always the best way, email. You can email me at mmei at atlasnetworks.com. A good number to reach me at is 941-544-1912. What about LinkedIn? Are you interested in connecting with folks on LinkedIn? No, absolutely. Please reach out to me on LinkedIn. Reach out to me any any which way. I'd love to be able to, to chat with anybody at any time. Thank you so much, Michael. This has been very informative. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you, Michael. My pleasure. Standing on Shoulders, a leader's guide to digital transformation, written by Jack Marr and Carmen Diardo. On behalf of everyone who tries to improve the business outcomes of the technology work we do every day, I applaud the efforts taken and the writing of this book so others can replicate their amazing outcomes. This book fulfills the promise of documenting their journeys and lessons learned and showing how the promise of creating world-class technology organizations can be within the reach of everyone. Gene Kim. Get your copy of Standing on Shoulders, A Leader's Guide to Digital Transformation at Amazon.com or at Barnes & Noble or at your favorite bookseller.